Good morning. Before we uh, get into the Word, I wanted just to offer you a, a moment of pause. Continuing what we were just praying and singing, would you close your eyes for a moment? What would it look like in this moment for you to open wide the doors of your heart to Christ? To intentionally welcome Him in. You may have sung to Him for a few minutes. You may have been singing about Him for a few moments. In this moment, you pause and you actually speak directly to the God who is here. And you say, I welcome you. I welcome what you have for me. I welcome that you just love me. Jesus, we open the doors of our heart to you only to see that you've already opened the doors of your heart towards us. So we welcome, sit with us. You are a guest. You are welcome. You are home. Amen. Thank you. Each one of us was created in a cauldron of culture, of family, of faith, one of the ways that we really move forward in life is when we begin to acknowledge, you know, a lot of things shaped me before I got here. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Dallas, Texas. How many of you ever seen the TV show Dallas? That was basically my life. Yeah, if you saw that, that's, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Dallas in the 70s and 80s was kind of divided in half, uh, north of downtown, south of downtown. North of downtown was, was mainly middle to upper class. This is very general, but uh, south of downtown uh, was more lower class. Uh, north of downtown was primarily a lot of white and, uh, people and suburbs, and south of downtown was primarily a lot of uh, African-American and Hispanic people. And it was kind of just accepted, I mean, it wasn't even verbalized, but it was just accepted that certain areas of town were the way they were because of the people who lived there. This area of town was more crime-ridden. This area of town was more vandalized. This area of town was more broken down because that's just how these people chose to live. And so it became easy for me to just accept the world around me and to form opinions about groups of people. It's easy to become judgmental. It was easy for me to not look at things like societal circumstances or history and just say, this is how people are. This is what I'm learning is the power of privilege. I heard Amy Julia Becker, the author of the book White Picket Fences, speak over at the Navigators a few weeks ago on the subject of privilege. And, and she started talking about anytime you use the word privilege, all of our radars go up and we get nervous and we start Googling and we start wondering what our favorite uh, news commentator is going to say about this or is this a political term. And the way she explained it is privilege is just a social advantage, maybe based on your race or your wealth or where you grew up. And she said, when you, uh, when you experience privilege, one of the mistakes we can make is think that we did something wrong. Oh, I'm supposed to feel bad about growing up in North Dallas? No, that's a wrong response to that. 
And she also said that a second mistake we make when we talk about privilege is that we feel, um, we say, well, I don't feel privileged. And I think back in my life and I think I didn't really feel that privileged. It wasn't like I was really living in a mansion in Texas like the show Dallas. I didn't feel privileged at all. But I begin to realize uh, privilege is just a reality where you look back and go, you know, I wasn't really marginalized for who I was. I wasn't really cut off from people. I didn't really face certain problems. I don't feel like I'm a racist person. I don't feel like I've ever truly been a racist person. But I can see how racist attitudes have influenced and shaped some of the ways I see people. And I've had to fight to overcome this. I've had to intentionally sit across from people whose experiences of America are vastly different from mine. I've had to pursue conversations with people of different backgrounds so I can listen, so I can learn and go, okay, I didn't see that. I've wrestled with this question. How can white people and Latinos and African Americans all read the same Bible and come up with such wildly different political positions? This is the power of privilege. Pulling back from just my experience, I mean, if you just are, look back at our nation's history, it wasn't too long ago that color was destiny. Your skin determined which counter you could sit at, which home you could buy, which job you could have, which water fountain you could use. Now, we have made enormous amounts of progress as a nation. It's been so good to be moving forward. And yet, I look back over the last few years in this rise of white nationalism, and it's showing us that we have many, many miles to go. The cauldron that creates us is strong. You see, what state you grew up in, what politics your parents talked about at dinner, what jokes you made about certain kinds of people, what your economic, economic status was, these are all components of the cauldron. For example, how many of you remember back in elementary school or middle school that you would begin every day by standing, facing the American flag, and saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States flag, right? How many of you did that? And then how many of you remember then turning towards the Texas flag and offering your Pledge of Allegiance to the Texas flag? How many of you remember that? What country are you all from? <laughs> I just learned today that every state didn't stand up and pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. Well, let me throw you for a loop. How many of you then turned again towards the Christian flag and pledged allegiance to the Christian flag? I don't want to blow your mind, but there was a time that I pledged allegiance to the Bible, God's holy word. So I'm pledging allegiance to a lot of things. And just take that state thing for real. Set aside the joke. I mean, imagine growing up in a state where you pledge allegiance to America, of course, but then you quickly turn and pledge America to Texas because you know in a real fight where it's going down. <laughs> the cauldron that creates us is strong. And some of these things that shape us can actually hold us more tightly than the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because while we may be born again in the kingdom, we still were born the first time in this cauldron. And so the love we have of our country, our view of government, our impressions of certain groups of people can sometimes be more powerful than our view of the kingdom. Or perhaps, more accurately, can define our view of the kingdom so much that we think that our view is the kingdom. In Matthew 15 today, we're going to see Jesus Christ confront people's view of his kingdom. It's my prayer that he's going to confront me and you with the ways that we hold space with people who challenge the cauldron. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15, 
And we're going to start in the middle of that passage there. We're going to pick up the story in progress. Matthew 15, 21. So Jesus left that place and he went off to the district of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those parts came out and shouted, Have pity on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is demon-possessed. She's in a bad way. Matthew's uh, narrating this story for us. He tells us that Jesus left that place and he went off. Your version might say he withdrew. What's happening here is this. Jesus is taking a break from ministering to primarily Jewish people in the Galilee region. He's getting away for a rest. He's heading to the coast. The coast. He's heading towards pagan Gentile territory. Now, for these Jewish disciples, they were a little nervous because this was clearly the wrong side of town. They wouldn't find any rabbis here. They wouldn't find any synagogues. Not a lot of Jewish-friendly shops. Jesus wasn't here, though, to preach to the Jews. He was here to take some time off. But his vacation is interrupted by this woman. She has a problem. What is it? Her daughter. Her daughter's under the control of a demon. I don't know if you ever uh, have read through the Gospels, but you're like, man, it seems like all these people were being controlled by demons. What's, what's happening here? One theory that I like for this is that as Jesus began to ramp up his mission to rescue the world, that the opposition spiritually increased as well. And so there was an intensity happening here. And this young daughter, as we know from the other stories in the Gospels, what it's like to be in this kind of torture. She probably had seizures. She probably attempted to hurt herself or kill herself. She was in constant physical pain, constant mental agony. It's her daughter. How far would you go to save your daughter? When, when my brother was 10 years old, he developed a rare form of cancer. He lived with it for 20 years. One of my most vivid memories of high school was our family's desperate attempts to find treatment. Because you go to the doctor, and they're like, there's nothing we can do. And my mom was like, nope, you. Everyone gets a shot. We kept going from place to place. We went to the top doctors, and we'd switch and switch and switch. We went to Mexico one time to purchase illegal medicine and smuggled it back across the border. Today's the first time I've ever told that story. We smuggled drugs across the border of Mexico. <laughs> if only we had a wall to stop us from the... Anyway. When my brother got older, uh, my wife and I traveled with him to an experimental uh, treatment, and it was in Canada. They were doing this nuclear treatment that was not allowed in the United States. So we flew to Canada. I remember coming back through the airport. All three of us were pulled aside. Security comes out, guns blazing. What was going on was we had this high radiation count that was setting off all of the counters. Why are you coming back from Canada with a lot of radiation on you? And we just pointed at him. Uh, <clears throat> my parents spent thousands of dollars, went and amassed incredible amounts of debt, their lives were upended. Why? Because when it's your kid, you will do anything, right? This woman had gone from shaman to shaman, from faith healer to faith healer. She had spent everything she had on cures and helps. She had gone to every person in her religion. Will you help me? Will you help me? Will you help me? What do I need to pray? I'll pray to this idol. I'll bow to this idol. What do I need to do? I'll do anything. And now Jesus gets a turn. Now, how many times have we seen Jesus, some 
person comes to him, they're, they're blind, they're lame, maybe they even have some, a family member who's dying or has already died, and they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus is like, I'm happy to help. Boom, they're fine. In fact, in Matthew alone, we see Jesus cast out demons a number of times. This is not a big deal for him. This is like a five-second job for Jesus. We have a problem, Matthew points out. She's not just a woman. What kind of woman is she? She's a Canaanite. The Canaanites were the descendants of Israel's ancient enemies. These are two races that have been in conflict for centuries. This is a race of people, the Canaanites, that God commanded his people over and over. Listen, I don't want you to do any business with them. I don't want you to sign a contract with them. I don't want you to make any kind of government contract with them. I don't want you to do a covenant with them. I don't want you to marry them. I don't want you to live next door to them. In fact, and in one part of the Bible that is so challenging for me, God says, I want you to kill them and wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, it's centuries later, and there's... The tensions have eased somewhat. They're not at war with each other. But the cauldron that creates us is strong. Scrambling for some kind of way to grab a hold of this for, uh, for our audience. And I, I just imagine a white Ku Klux Klan member in 1962 coming up to an African-American pastor and saying, hey, would you please help me? Just imagine all that's boiling under the surface there. She shouldn't even be talking to Jesus. But when it's your kid, you'll do anything, right? So here she comes. Jesus is walking along. She comes crying out. Matthew, Matthew actually says she came out shouting. This is a woman who has long since run out of any kind of patience or propriety. She is here for help. Have pity on me, Lord Son of David. Now, this is really interesting. Son of David, that's not a Canaanite phrase. This is a Jewish phrase. But she doesn't believe in the God of the Jews. She doesn't know the history of David. Why would she honor Jesus with this title? In the comedy Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby is a race car driver who's cracking up a little bit. And at one point during a race, he begins to believe that his car is on fire. It's not on fire. Then he begins to believe that his racing suit is on fire. It's not on fire. And so he jumps out of this, and he's running around the track not on fire, but thinking he's on fire. And he screams out, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jewish God. Help me, Allah. Help me, Tom Cruise. When you're desperate enough, you will call on any name to save you. She's long past desperate. She may not believe in him, but she will use whatever name will work. Now we know Jesus. He's going to heal her, right? He's going to heal his daughter. Let's see, verse 23. Jesus, however, said what? That's actually a good answer. Yeah, he said nothing. Jesus said nothing to her. He didn't ask her a question. He didn't tell her a story. He doesn't even say no. He ignores her. Is this Jesus that you follow? His disciples came up, please send her away. 
She's shouting after us. Perhaps emboldened by Jesus' silence, the disciples speak up. Look, she's messing up our vacation. She's making us nervous. Look, we're already on thin ice in this part of town, and she's making a scene. People are gathering. Send her away. And they can see through her ruse. Come on, she's not of the true faith. She's just using you, Jesus. You know, she's one of them, those unbelievers, the unclean, the unworthy. You know what? I bet all her messing with that Canaanite religion with their false gods and their weird idols and their, their human sacrifice, I, I bet she probably brought that demon on herself. That's how these people are, you know. I want you to remember something we were saying last week, that the driving force in Jewish thought during this day was this. We must make God happy, and the way we make God happy is by being pure. And we are pure before God in two ways. Number one, if we can trace our heritage back to Abraham. And number two, if we believe and behave in the right ways. This drive to be pure affected how they saw everything in the planet, including this woman. In fact, if you go back a few verses, what they were just coming from was a heated argument between Jesus and the Pharisees over how come the disciples weren't washing their hands in the right way and were making God mad. And the hope was if we are pure enough, if we are good enough, if we are clean enough, then when the Messiah comes, he will come for us, not for Canaanite women. Now, these disciples have been following Jesus for some time, and they have seen him do some inexplicable and surprising things. He has compassion where there should have been judgment. He has a meal where there should have been shunning. He's breaking boundaries all the time, and yet still these disciples in their hearts are Jewish nationalists first. And the cauldron that creates us is strong. You know, these disciples are trying to follow Jesus, but remember, they grew up in a cauldron where they were trained to hate the Canaanites. They memorized Bible verses that ordered them to condemn and even kill them. All this is in this cauldron that combines to give a view of the kingdom where Canaanite women get sent away. What does Jesus do next? He says this out loud, I was only sent, replied Jesus, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, look at me for a second. We have an advantage. We have the advantage of hindsight. We can look back. We know what happens. We know that Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead. We know this stuff. So we are looking back in the story with insight that they do not have. And we know on this side of the cross that Jesus came to rescue the whole world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know that. And we also know that the way that Jesus was going to come and rescue the world was to start through his people, the house of Israel. Israel was always this special group of people God loved, but they were never the only group of people God loved. Israel was going to be the doorway through whom God was going to share his love with the entire planet. God was going to love the world through the house of Israel. So what Jesus' mission was, was this. I'm first going to go to the house of Israel. They will embrace me, and then we'll take this thing national and worldwide. This is what Jesus is affirming here. My ministry is to the house of Israel, not to the Canaanites. I have to go through the house of Israel to reach them. That's what we know. That's not what the disciples are hearing. What they're hearing is this. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Period. 
if you grew up being taught that the Canaanites were impure, unworthy degenerates, and you have just called for Jesus to send this woman away, and he responds by affirming, yes, I did not come to rescue people like her, but people like you, what do you say next? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you. We were so worried. You know, you, it was one thing when you were healing people and doing this. It's one thing when you helped that Roman centurion's son. I mean, we get that because maybe that would improve our position. But surely you're not going to bring the stuff that's meant for us to people like them. Finally, we were so worried, Jesus, about how you were kind of slipping away. But now we see you're checking the right box. You're towing that party line. Oh, this is the kingdom we were working for. The woman doesn't clap. However, she came and threw herself down at his feet. Master, please help me. She's out of options. And in a crowd of men in a culture where she had no standing, she just gets on her knees and debases herself. Jesus, please help me. All these men are looking down at her. Please help me. Why would she beg like this? Because when it's your kid, and I wonder in this moment, I don't know, this is just conjecture, I wonder in this moment if the disciples began to see her differently, not as a Canaanite, but as a, as a person, not as a sin, but as someone who's suffering. Maybe they can relate to the times that they have been begging before God. Maybe the times that they had a need that was so great. Maybe a time that they felt helpless. Maybe a time that they didn't know where to turn. And in her own begging, they see themselves and they realize maybe Jesus should do something. Maybe he will. Verse 26. But it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. That's an interesting way to respond. What does he mean? Bread and dogs? What's going on there? If you were here a few weeks ago, we actually were in Mark uh, chapter 8, where Jesus used bread as a metaphor for himself. Hey, just like you eat bread and it brings you life, guess what? I'm the bread of life. And the children in this story are the people of God, Israel. The bread of life was intended for the children of Israel. But what about the dogs? got a dog uh, for Christmas. Her name is Maple. She is so cute. And everywhere we bring Maple, everyone loves her. Maple loves us. I think that Maple is secretly plotting to kill me and take my place because she loves Jessica so much more than me. We took Maple to a soccer game yesterday in Denver and crowds are lined up to come and pet this dog. She just is love, love, love all the time. We love dogs. Back in this day, not so much. Back in this day, dogs were unclean scavengers. They were running on the streets. They were grabbing food from stalls. They were pests. I never really understood the way that people thought about dogs until we were in Haiti a few years ago. And I saw just how, how dogs were treated. Dogs were not house pets. They didn't oh, walk around in purses looking out at people. They, they were running the streets wild. And I remember this one kid at this one place had a stick, and this dog was coming by, and he was hitting the dog with a stick. And I went up to him, and I was like, no, 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 we don't hit dogs with a stick. And he was like, what? And then he just started hitting the dog again. It was like he was just hitting a rat or a cat or something that didn't mean anything. 
My point is, for them, it was part of their culture. It's just, they, they looked down. Dogs were scavengers. They weren't beneficial. They were just these things. And so what Jesus is saying with this complex statement is this, why would you take the Messiah that belongs to the house of Israel and give it to some dogs? Why would you take the bread that belongs to the kids in the house and throw it out to a dog? So let's recap our story. Jesus ignores a woman's cry for help. Jesus states that he was not sent to help her. And when she finally falls at her feet, he insults her and calls her a dog. Parents, how about you tell this story at bedtime to your kids tonight, right? What a great story. By the way, cards on the table. I think Jesus is being very subversive here. I think he's miles ahead of his disciples. I think he's leading them into a trap. I wish we could see his eyes toward this woman. I think they've welled with tears. I wish we could hear his voice. I think it's dropped to a gentle register because she is on the cusp of epiphany. Listen what she says. I know, Master, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. She's on her knees. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't say, I'm not a dog. She gets the game. Messiahs don't come for people like her who believe the things that she believes, who's done the things she's done. And she doesn't expect Jesus to change his convictions for her. She knows she's not welcome at the table. But, but maybe a crumb? Maybe a bite? I'll be a dog if I could get a scrap. And in the words of a woman who is unknown to us except for her race, we receive a revelation. Something that no religious scholar, no faithful Jew, no pure person in that crowd could yet see, that God's table was bigger. Bigger than pure, impure. Bigger than insider, outsider. Bigger than clean, unclean. Bigger than worthy, unworthy. That maybe the point that God had been trying to make for thousands of years to his house is we need a bigger table. We need to welcome these unwelcome. We need to give mercy to the undeserving. We need to give all us dogs a scrap. Look what Jesus says. You've got great faith, haven't you? My friend. All right. Let it be as you wish. And her daughter was healed from that moment. I told you it wouldn't take long. In the original language, with this phrase, my friend, is not just, hey, buddy, or hey, lady, or hey, my pal. No, it's, it conveys deep emotion. Jesus was moved deeply by this woman. My friend. You are my friend. What moved him? Well, he tells us. She had great faith, hadn't she? You know, often in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus calls people out for their lack of faith. Jonathan talked about doubt earlier, and, and Matthew is a great book to go to if you want to see, see Jesus get upset by people not having faith. He's always frustrated. Why do you have so little faith? I've been with you so long, and you still don't believe. When are you going to trust me? Oh, your little faith. He's just always frustrated with faith. But twice in the book of Matthew, Jesus commends people for having great faith. You have great faith, and that has moved me. Twice. Both times. It was someone outside the faith. It was a Gentile, a pagan, an other. 
Now help me understand theologically what's happening here. How accurate is her understanding? Does she know that God loves her and has a wonderful plan for her life? Has she admitted that she's a sinner? Has she made changes in her life? Has she renounced her Canaanitism? I don't know. Jesus just says, you have great faith, and you are my friend, and you get mercy, and your daughter is healed from this moment. We know that Jesus can do miracles. This moment is about much more than a miracle. It's about someone who's been dismissed from society, finally being seen, finally being known, finally being welcomed to the broader kingdom table. What's happening is this. Jesus is making it safe to hold space with the other. It's easy to look back through history and, and judge people. All oh, these disciples, what knuckleheads. How are they so da-da-da-da-da? But uh, I don't know that these disciples are that far apart from us. Sometimes I think we hide behind our faith when in reality we're just scared. We're scared to listen. We're scared to learn. We're scared to change the way we think. We're scared of what others might think. We're scared that God might get mad at us. The disciples were scared. But Jesus made it safe to hold space with the other. How do we apply this to us today? I don't know how to apply it to you. I will apply it to me. I need this scripture to speak to me because I am in this story. I feel like I'm often saying, send her away. More worried about holding on to what I say is right than holding space with someone else. And I've confessed to you before, I, I have sin in this area. My own send her away is towards religion and legalism. And I confess to you, and I've done this before, that I've hated religion and legalism more than I've loved Jesus. That doesn't achieve anything. So really in this story, I don't find it hard to like the Canaanites. I love the Canaanites. I find it hard to love the Pharisees. And so in this story, I feel like Jesus is looking at me, my friend, and reminding me, you know, I held space with the Pharisees too. I broke bread with the Pharisees too. The night I was betrayed, I washed the feet of my betrayer too. What I'm learning from this is I need to learn to hold space with people who won't hold space with the other. Now, why is this important? Is this just some kind of let's all get along thing? No, no, no. There's a very critical spiritual aspect to this because we see something over and over in the Gospels. We saw it here and we see it everywhere. Welcome precedes transformation. When people feel finally safe, when they feel truly loved, truly known, when people feel accepted, when they dare to believe that, you know, if these people really knew me, I, I think they would love me, then the welcome of God begins to seek in. And that's where the transformation of Jesus kicks in. A few weeks ago, I got to hear uh, from Dr. Derwin Gray, pastor of Transformation Church in North Carolina. Dr. Gray is a former NFL player. He actually came to Christ while playing football in the pros. And one day he found out he was going to be traded to Carolina. Sounds great. Except Dr. Derwin Gray is an African-American man. And when he learned he was being traded to Carolina, he immediately was concerned. He knew 
what people from the South thought about people who look like him. He imagined, these are his words, he imagined a bunch of Confederate flag-waving, NASCAR-driving people that are going to hate him. He says, I grew up fearing these people, hating these people, not wanting to go there. He was about to be the other in a place that he wasn't welcome. So what did God do when he got to Carolina as a Christian now? Dr. Derwin said this, so God put me in a church full of those people. And these people I judged for so long did something amazing. They loved the prejudice right out of me. He said, when I began to feel truly accepted by these people, it allowed Jesus to do a work of transformation in my heart, and I found myself opened up to love people I didn't think I could ever love. He was welcomed, and then transformation came. Some people say today throw out this word tolerance a lot. We need more tolerance in our country. I'll just tell you personally for me, I don't want you to tolerate me. I don't want your tolerance. I want your acceptance of who God created me to be. And I think Josh McDowell says it better than I do. Tolerance says you must approve of what I do. Love responds. I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. Jesus makes it safe to hold space, to love people, agenda-free. And when we do, we allow people to open themselves up to the transformation of Jesus Christ. So welcome to Pulpit Rock Church. We're a church for people who are willing to hold the same space, even when we don't hold the same convictions. It's a place where I can love you, even though I don't agree with you. It's a place where you can love me without having to change me first. We could have love that is agenda-free. So as I move towards a moment where you talk to Jesus about this, let me ask this. Who's your Canaanite? In the cauldron that created you, who were you told was a dog, unworthy of scraps? Right now, is there someone or some group that God is stirring you and saying, I want you to forgive I want you to reach out. I want you to love. If you want to be truly honest this morning, where have you hidden behind religion when in reality you were just scared? Will you pray with me? Jesus, it seems like everyone in this story was scared. The disciples were scared. This woman was scared. You weren't. We're scared. We're scared of the things that you call us to. We're scared of the people you call us to. This morning, may we be reminded that we are all the dogs. That we have been loved far more than we deserve so that we might love others far more than they deserve. Jesus, who are you bringing to my mind right now that you are calling me to love? Not to tolerate, but to love.